Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we'll be talking about a short story called How to Break into a Hotel Room by Stephen Graham Jones. This was published in 2021. This might be our most uh, recent story we've covered on the, on the show. Oh, it absolutely is. I mean, it is early 2022 as we are recording this, which means that, yeah, we're we're a year-ish <laughs> out from the actual publication of this story, which we have never, ever done before. And uh, I think it's unlikely that we will ever do again. And in fact, we've even got this uh, short turnaround time, I guess we could call it here, only because this episode was commissioned by one of our really awesome and really generous Patreon supporters. And I want to say a huge thanks for this commission. This uh, was part of a multi-story commission, which is phenomenal for us to get to do. And this has gotten us into some more contemporary fiction. And of course, this one, the most contemporary fiction that we have ever done. And I'm I'm super grateful for the opportunity to take a look at these very recent stories. I am too. It's been really fun for me. I mean, I know I'm I'm much more of a reader of contemporary fiction than you are, Glenn. But for me, contemporary is like the uh, stuff that came out the decade that I was born, <laughs> you know, not, not stuff that <laughs> right. was published a year ago. So I'm super grateful for this. So thank you so much to our uh, very generous Patreon supporter who commissioned these episodes. And this is a really interesting and I, I think really evocative story. I, I almost said fun there or enjoyable or something, but I'm not quite sure that that's true because there's some real uh, there's some real trauma in this story and some some real disturbing imagery in this story as well. But nonetheless, it's excellently written and I'm really looking forward to talking about it. But before we have a discussion on the story, let's uh, let's get through it. So Brandon, uh, take us into the recap. Javier or Javi is a pretty good guy. He's a thief and a scammer, but his heart is in the right place. His friend and fence, Tran, is dying. And Javi really wants to do something nice for Tran. So he devises a scam that will remind Tran of the good old days. Tran is basically buying anything right now. And so Javi decides to steal trinkets from hotel rooms, watches, tablets, earrings, and sell them to Tran. And Javi thinks that this action or taking this action will be a way of reminiscing about how they got started together selling booze and pills and copies of house keys, shoes still in the box and stuff like that in the seventh grade. It'll be like they're just still innocent kids having fun. And Javi, because he's a good guy, really wants to do this for Tran. So Javier tells Tran about his plan to rob a nice hotel, and Tran says, go for it, but don't get caught. You should really drive along Mercer Avenue. And that shows some care on Tran's part, because Tran really doesn't want Javi to have to do any more time or get arrested or what have you. And it feels like they both know that it doesn't really matter what Javi is going to steal, because they're trying to capture these special moments from the past. Javi wants to be reminded of the time when the scam itself was what was holy, when the scam was what mattered, not what you got out of it. This is just a a perfect opening. This story's opening is just awesome. We don't start with anything weird. We don't start with anything speculative at all. We're just right in some 
crime fiction, just close in the point of view of a small time burglar. I mean, I say small time, I don't mean to, you know, minimize the fact that he's clearly had success at doing this, <laughs> but you know, he's just knocking over hotel rooms. It's it's small time. He's making a living, but it's small time. And of course, we also have here the you know, famous trope of the the one last score, though in this case, right, the burglar himself isn't the one whose last score it is. And I think that that is a nice touch, a nice uh, sort of variation on that theme. And this also shows Javi as someone with empathy, right? As someone who cares about his friend, someone who therefore is capable of caring about others. And you know, we can't know that here at the opening of the story, but by the end of the story, this is a detail about Javi that's uh, really going to be important and I think is going to be exceptionally important when we get to the discussion. I love that you highlight the way that this opening of the the story here operates as a bit of crime fiction. I didn't encounter it that way because... I read it in a magazine called Nightmare and was looking, you know, for when the horror was going to pick up. Uh, and, you know, horror often is a, a genre that can worm its way into other genres, uh, you know, where horror emerges out of out of some other, I don't know, the soil of another genre, I suppose is one way to put it. And so I didn't even really think about what other genre this might be, but I'm so glad you pointed out that this is crime fiction. The opening of the story would feel right at home at that, you know, con artist, Robert Block story that we read, or, uh, you know, any of the the crime novels from the 40s and, and 50s. And so it just has that great feel that that Jones is just steeped in as he's starting the story here. Well, I won't make a, a discussion point out of this, Brandon, as I, as I sometimes do about what music we were reading <laughs> while we, uh, or what music we were listening to while we read this story. But I just randomly actually happened to be listening to some like, you know, quiet saxophone and piano music that is essentially, you know, the sort of music that could be the score for a film noir. That was just a, you know, a, a me hitting shuffle. And so I think it just put me in the the mindset of crime fiction here as I was laying down on the couch to, to give this story a read, which was as, you know, a bit of serendipity on my part. But no, I mean, like you, I went to this, you know, thinking, you know, Stephen Graham Jones is a serious business, much lauded horror writer. This isn't a magazine that says, you know, these are scary stories. But I, I was surprised and, and pleasantly surprised to just find ourselves here in some crime fiction. And that is something that's going to carry on for a little while before we do actually get to the horror of the story. Right. Well, you know, remember, our, our, our main character here, Javi, is robbing hotel rooms. And one thing you need when robbing hotel rooms is cigarettes. You know, that way you can stand outside and smoke at three in the morning and wait for someone to open the door for you and they'll think you just forgot your key. And then you have to go right into the first stairwell. You go up three floors and then one more floor for luck. You carry change in your hand. So it looks like you're going to your floor on the way to your room via the vending machine. And, you know, all of this is what Javi does. He caps off his way to the fourth floor with a trip to the vending machine to buy iced tea. There's a lot about iced tea here. It adds to the mood of the story. I'm not really going to narrate it. Uh, instead, what I'm going to do is uh, just move us on to this kind of reflection that we get, this reminiscence from Javi about he and Tran's early days of crime. When they were in junior high, Javi and Tran started making copies of their classmates' house keys and selling them to whomever. They believed that only people who were into breaking and entering, or house jobs, would buy the keys. They were young and naive. But it turns out that one of their B&E clients turned around and sold a key he bought from the boys to someone else. 
This particular set of keys belonged to a classmate of the boys. And whoever bought the key entered the house of Lisa Kay's family, their classmate, and killed everyone except for Lisa Kay. What's pertinent here to the sense of guilt that Javi carries over this incident is that Lisa Kay had a baby brother who was also murdered by this madman. Lisa Kay is alive because she'd snuck out of the house that night to, quote, drink warm beer down at the old drive-in with the rest of the eighth graders. And, you know, I quoted this because it's a great bit of descriptive writing. Anyway, years later, Javi thinks he saw Lisa looking real bad on Mercer Ave, smoking cigarettes in front of a storm drain, and he just drove on. So he's being eaten away by the potential, really, as we come to understand it, that he and Tran were caught up in this murder, this ruining of Lisa Kay's life, this life-ending event for Lisa Kay's family, even for Lisa to some degree, even at a distance, even if they just sold the key. And these are the thoughts that are flooding Javi's mind as he sips the bottled diced tea he got from the vending machine. His guilt doesn't manifest in these intrusive types of thoughts alone, though. He also checks the floorboards of whatever car he's driving. He presumably checks around a lot of places because he thinks that a baby could hide anywhere. And that's because the real problem with this Lisa K business is that he sees the image of her infant brother a lot. He's haunted by it. And so he sips his iced tea again. Haunted is 100% the right word. And, and we're going to see that more, uh, really more literally, I guess, in a, in a little bit. Uh, I just want to pause here and take stock of this backstory before we move on. It's absolutely harrowing. I mean, it certainly disturbed me to read about an infant having his throat slit, even though Jones does not dwell on this detail, or at least he doesn't dwell on you know the, the, the graphic image of it. That is all taken care of in, in one sentence, and then we move on from it. It's not body horror. But there is also an element of this story that you, you left out, Brandon, that I think really dials up the discomfort here, which is that there is a, a randomness to this, right? Tran and Javi are in this business of selling house keys, but they're the ones getting the house keys. They're either getting them by uh, stealing them from little lockboxes outside people's houses, or even just getting them from classmates who don't care if someone breaks into their own house and then steals their parents' CDs or a watch that's been left on a coffee table, you know, something like that. They just want some cash themselves and essentially are, I don't know, they might as well just steal their own parents' CDs and take them down to the used CD shop here in, I don't know, circa 1995 or whatever this, <laughs> uh, this backstory is set. But, you know, it's more elaborate than that. But the point I'm driving at here, what matters for the backstory is that in this case, with Lisa Kay's house, Tran and Javi, they, they actually don't know whose keys they are. They just have a random anonymous set of house keys and they sell them at a discount. And so whoever wound up with these keys, whoever murdered this family, whoever slit the throat of this baby, whoever, whoever did this had some other work to do beforehand, uh, trying to figure out whose house these keys belong to. And that itself seems like a lot of trouble to go to really for any reason, I think. And, and so for me, this detail makes the whole thing even more sinister because it feels so staged. 
the absurdity of this crime, and I don't mean it's an absurd crime like funny. I mean, it's it, it, it relies upon this tower of contingent events, as you pointed out, Glenn, these uh, things that could be otherwise, the finding of the keys in the parking lot, the work that the killer would have to go through to find the home that these keys belong to, all of these types of contingencies. This is, you're right to point out, what disturbs Javi the most. And I think that Stephen Graham Jones does such a good job of situating us in Javi's belief that he's responsible for this, as though this is really the worst thing that could happen as an outcome of he and Tran's decision to get into a life of crime, that Javi sort of makes this part of his origin story as a criminal. Um, and, and so we don't know as readers whether or not this series of contingent events is what led to the murder. What matters is that Javi believes it does. And he sort of funneled all of his guilt as a criminal into this thing that happened to him in, in junior high school. It, it does almost seem impossible that it's these set of keys that could lead to this because it, it, it is absurd to envision someone who wants to randomly murder a family to, to go to this level of work to just get a set of house keys or something seems unnecessary when, you know, the whole point of using house keys to get into someone's house and steal their CDs is that you don't wake them up while they're asleep. You're doing this in the middle of the night. If you're going to murder them all, you perhaps don't care about, you know, breaking the window to go to go in, right? So uh, this is, I think, an observation that we'll need to keep in mind when we get to the discussion, when we're going to talk about the veracity, I guess, of, of Javi's hypothesis here, but then also about the nature of what's what's to come. Well, let's move on to the actual, you know, breaking into the hotel room part of the story, <laughs> what, the, what the title promises we're here for. Uh, I didn't mention it before, but some elegant partygoers, like a couple in a romantic partnership or something like that, are the ones who open the door and allow Javi into the hotel to begin with. And now they're back. He sees them leave room 422. And so Javi's decided that that's the room he's going to break into because they're clearly going out again. So what Javi does is he drops his driver's license inside of the room under the door and then hides his wallet so that he can go tell the front desk that he needs to get into his room, but he has no wallet or ID. And this is what Javi does. He cons the front desk person and then the security guard into letting him into the room. And then he picks up his driver's license off the floor and he shows it to the security guard. He hand waves away any rational questions and then he's alone in the room. Okay. So before we get to the, the climax of the story and get to the real horror element of it, I again want to pause here just to take stock of some of what Jones is up to. And, and here, what I want to take stock of is the crime fiction element. Because Jones puts a ton of work into explaining the scheme to us. He, he puts a ton of work into uh, telling us about the logistics of how Javi gets into this room. And this scheme is one part understanding the layout and also the mechanical workings of hotels and hotel rooms. And then the scheme is another part understanding the human workings of hotels. So he's got a whole system for getting into the hotel without a key and, and also without being seen 
by the attendant. Uh, This involves leaving his shoes and socks in his car so that he'll be barefoot and therefore look like he's just gotten up in the middle of the night for a smoke. It also involves hiding his face from the security cameras, but also involves looking like he belongs there for the cameras. This is actually why we get so much about iced tea in the beginning of the story. (laughs) And then he plants his ID in the room so that it will be in there when the clerk lets him in, which is, I think, very clever. And then he knows how to act casual with the clerk and seem to answer questions without actually answering them. There's a, a lot of misdirection in his dialogue where he he comments on questions he's been asked in a way that seems like he's answered them when in fact he has not answered them at all, or even invites the clerk to actually answer his own question uh, in a way that it feels like Hoffy has answered the question. And it's masterful the way he does this. And I really, really loved this part of the story. We have talked before, Brandon, I think it was probably when we did The House on the Borderland, but we've talked before about how much I love stories about the logistics of buildings, like whether that's, you know, it's Die Hard, it could be Home Alone. I'm just, which I guess Home Alone is really just Die Hard for kids, I suppose. But uh, at any rate, <laughs> right. I am a sucker for this sort of thing. And when I was a kid, I really, really super cared about knowing all the secrets of my school building and my church building and other, you know, buildings and and places in my life. You know, and that was just things like, you know, how to get in when it's closed, uh, how to get onto the roof, what's behind, you know, this door and that door and, you know, that sort of thing. I I was certainly as a kid, I was a real sneak, uh, but it was just because I wanted to know the the lay of the land. Like I wasn't up to anything, you know, nefarious in any way. I just wanted to explore, to investigate. And so this story just really, really, really appeals to me on this level. And I just have to salute what Jones has done here. It really scratched an itch that I, you know, I didn't know I still had, frankly. Yeah, I love this kind of stuff too. There was a a strange glut of like con artist movies, I feel like in the late 80s and early 90s, where the the con artists and the scammers were the heroes. And for some reason, I was allowed to watch all of them, presumably because like, you know, Dana Carvey and Val Kilmer were good guys in my parents' (laughs) eyes. I'm not quite sure. But to me, yes, it's the exact same thing. I, it, 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 created in me this like drive to know all the secrets, uh, the ins and the outs, not just of buildings, but also of people, how to misdirect and I don't know, steal their wallet. I remember climbing on my grandpa and trying to dig in his pockets while he was napping or something like that. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, the art of the scam is something I've I've loved. And we don't get a lot of uh, crime fiction, you know, the fast talking wise guys and the, the people who can talk their way out of situations and just these low level criminals. Uh, it's it's such a delight. Although, you know, Stephen Graham Jones has situated this character in a slightly different context. I, I really love the way he's still checking the boxes of uh, kind of the, the art of the scam here. It's a real pleasure to read. Yeah, I guess this story, just to put it in the, in terms of the types of movies you're invoking there, Brandon, this, uh, this story is one part Catch Me If You Can and one part Ocean's Eleven. Right, right. Yeah, I was thinking Opportunity Knocks and the Saint, but we all have our own uh, (laughs) references, I suppose, for con artists and scam movies. Yeah, I'm actually a little ashamed that I didn't say the saint, and and Brent will let me uh, let me know about it. I mean, that was one of our movies we just had on on repeat constantly in his basement when we uh, when we weren't reading the Sandman. (laughs) Right. I mean that that I don't know. We're 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 not doing a saint podcast, but not yet. I watched that movie recently, (laughs) and it uh, I still love it. I don't know if it holds up, but I still love it. 
All right. Well, Javi is, is in the hotel room, as we pointed out, and he notices that there is a problem with the room. It looks as if no one is staying in it at all. The bed is made. The bathroom is untouched. There are no personal effects. It's just empty. And the experience is really weird. So Javi looks out the window and yeah, it's just cars in the parking lot. He hasn't been transported to some other dimension like the Twilight Zone or something like that. And so he feels like it's just time to leave, right? Because he can't steal anything from an empty room. But just as Javi is about to open the door and step back out into the hallway, he sees shadows move in the crack between the door and the floor. So he checks the people after a beat and, okay, now the hallway is clear. But Javi is clearly freaked out. He's panicking a little. He checks the window again because he wants to make sure his car is still there and that all is clear. And as he's looking at his car, imagining he'll be in it and able to get home, he sees someone in the tree line just beyond the parking lot smoking a cigarette. It looks like they're watching him. He's probably just being paranoid. But then the cigarette smoker does something really strange. They point to the floor that Javi is on, and he's like, okay, what am I supposed to do with that? And then he notices that the hotel that he's in only has three floors, but somehow he's on the fourth floor, and now he's having a real panic attack. And soon he begins to hear the sound of plastic whooshing accompanied by tapping, And when he investigates the sound, he sees that it's the cards in his wallet whisking under the door and hitting the dresser. He asks who's there, basically, and then he hears the toilet flush in the bathroom. He sits on the bed to try to catch his breath, and then he goes into the bathroom. He sees a cigarette butt in the toilet, and he tries to hide in the closet alcove. The lights flicker. He breathes in the smell of that gross iced tea and he smells cigarette smoke. And all he knows is that he needs to get out of this room, but he can't. Behind him, he hears the mewling of a baby and he can't look back to see if it's really there. It would be too horrifying if it were there and it might actually be there. I should point out here something I haven't pointed out, that a lot of the cigarette imagery is related to that that moment of seeing Lisa Kay in, on Mercer Ave uh, smoking a cigarette and, and Javi just driving on. Anyway, Javi checks the peephole again, but this time he's in the hallway looking back into the hotel room. And then he sees himself in his car, and then he's in Trans Hospital Room. And then he watches as he slides his driver's license under the door like he did before. And the driver's license catches his foot inside of the hotel room. And now Javi's in both places. But I think on like a consciousness level or a clarity level of the story, he's now outside the hotel room looking through the lens the wrong way into the peephole. And behind himself, the himself in the hotel room, He sees the refrigerator open, and out of the open door comes one arm, and then another arm that is holding a knife. And now Javi is inside the room, turned around and watching this thing emerge from the fridge. Its face is, quote, stretched like tight leather, 
like wet leather was stretched tight around a skull and left to dry. And in this thing's mouth are the keys to Lisa Kay's home. Davi is naturally freaking out right now. He's pleading with the thing, telling it that they didn't know what would happen. Then he tries to deny that this thing in the hotel room even exists, that it's not there. And the final line of the story is this. It doesn't change anything. This was uh, was tense. The story went from being a, a bit of crime fiction with a you know, nonetheless horrible and, and also quite sorrowful backstory. It went from that to the exact plot of The Ring, which is totally not what I was expecting when I began reading the story. <laughs> I mean, maybe it was what I was expecting before I started reading the story, but you know, I got so immersed into the, the crime fiction narrative that I kind of forgot that we were going to get an actual horror story at the at the end of it. And it was quite a ride. And for such a short story with limited characters, I think that there is actually a ton to discuss here, or at least one big thing that we need to discuss here. And I think that the the big question, right, is whether or not anything supernatural is going on in this story, right? Whether or not something really has crawled out of this mini fridge to kill Javi. That's the big question. But I don't actually want to answer that question yet. (laughs) Instead, what I want to do is assume that the answer is yes, and then think about what that means. And, And I guess really what I mean is think about the mechanics and the metaphysics of this. So here's the question then, Brandon. If there really is some supernatural being that is crawling out of the mini-fridge in this hotel room in order to kill Javi, what is this thing? Who is this thing? And why is it here? And and I suppose, why now? I, I guess really... What I'm, what I'm asking you here, Brandon, is what is your occult detective solution to this case? If you're, if you're Karnacki or John Silence, how do you solve this one? Uh, this is the case that brings the occult detective into the picture, right? So this is the intro, I think, to the bigger story. And then the solution is, okay, this low-level criminal died. We have some real sympathy for him as a character, Nobody should really die in this state of panic and fear. Uh, But wait, there's evidence that maybe the crime took place somewhere else because we can't have the occult detective on the fourth floor of a three-story hotel. There's uh, there's all these other elements that come in. The refrigerator's open. Why is that? So I think we're dealing with with a ghost. But what, what really, the real direction I would go in to thematically overemphasize the nature of the the monster like ghoul in this story is that someone like Lisa Kay got into witchcraft and manifested guilt somehow and anyone connected with the with the crime of killing her family is a victim of this you know guilt monster and you got to sh- shut the witch down then yeah yeah i wondered about that too i mean that's certainly you know, if we can take literally take a take the imagery that we're getting as literally true, including you know the person smoking the cigarette out uh, in the parking lot, and I I applaud you, Brandon, for resisting using the phrase "cigarette smoking man." It was must have been hard for you to, <laughs> to leave that out. But in any event, right, it does seem like that must be Lisa Kay who's here doing some kind of yeah you know, magic or witchcraft or something like that to 
to Javi here to you know either open up some kind of portal where perhaps it's her crawling through the mini fridge here or yeah summoning some kind of you know, vengeance monster or something like that I guess vengeance demon if we're gonna be invoking other fiction let's uh, let's go with some buffy there and call it a vengeance <laughs> demon but yeah that certainly seems to be one one really plausible reading here Right. And then, you know, Trance is dying slowly, perhaps from a, a slow in, in infestation, demonic infestation or something like that. I mean, there's a lot of directions you could go in. Um, and and then what you have is really leaning into that, that crime fiction, especially in terms of if we're looking at uh, noir fiction where kind of everybody's the bad guy, um, that this would fit right at home in that style of narrative where everything is tragic. And because everything is tragic, everyone is bad. And because everyone is bad, the detective has a real hard time finding justice in, in, the, in the case. I would I would read that book or watch that film, you know, especially if it's got a nice like saxophone score. I would watch that. <laughs> I would watch that film. This was not actually the impulse that I had, though, in explaining what's what's going on here on the assumption that something supernatural is happening. I really leaned into more the idea that Javi and, and Tran, the selling of this key was not actually what happened to Lisa Kay's family at all. The reason that they think that is that, you know, part of the mystery of what happened to Lisa's Lisa's family is that there was no sign of breaking and entering. And so whoever got into their house had to have a way in. And the doors were locked, right? So the idea is whoever got in must have had a key that they could use to unlock the door and go in and then lock it behind them when they left. But of course, to my mind, what that suggests is maybe a monster got in through the refrigerator. You know, that's actually oh, what's yeah. happened. And and you know, so, but then of course that it raises the question of, but why come after Javi, right? The whole journey for Javi here, right, is emotionally is that he feels like this is something that's happening as as vengeance for his role in the death of Lisa Kay's family, and in particular, the the baby, I think. But still, that was how it felt to me while I was reading it. I think for for that story to work, that version of the story to work, there would have to be there would have to be a stronger emphasis on Javi being haunted by needing to know what happened. And then that would make sense. So now he's going to learn what happened in this hotel through through some kind of supernatural uh, inter- intervention, the refrigerator monster, which sounds way more like a Sesame Street type of villain <laughs> than anything else, is going gonna, is gonna to come out of the fridge and say, you didn't sell the key. That key didn't go to anyone. It didn't go anywhere. I'm the thing that killed the family. Um, you know, and that, that would be, that would be awesome. I got the chills listening to your, your version of events. It's much better than, uh, my, my take. I think I, I like your version a whole lot more. Oh, well, I liked yours a whole lot more. So I don't know, maybe we should go write each other's uh, story prompts, which actually that's great yeah. advice for writers to, to go do exactly that. But well, let's, let's get to the main question here though, because I'm not sure that I expect you to actually think that there is something supernatural happening here. So that's really the question. Is there something supernatural happening in the story or is this all internal to Javi? I don't, I don't think anything supernatural is going on in the story yet. You're, you're right to point that out. It, it, the fact is, and what's great about the final line of the story is that it's true. It doesn't change anything. 
whether or not there is something supernatural going on or whether Javi's breaking down finally under the weight of guilt of his existence, even when he thinks that the best way he can help his friend isn't to spend time with him. It's to steal things and get money, grift money from his dying friend. You know, that the, the, that even though Javi is this sort of person and acts in these ways, he's still kind of governed by his guilt. And so that's what's happening here. I mean, I've seen plenty of, of uh, two wing hotels that are, you know, a different number of stories on each wing. That's not, I think super uncommon architecture for a hotel like this. So I also, you know, think I could explain away his feeling that he's on the wrong floor or on a floor that doesn't exist by uh, weird hotel architecture, weird motel architecture in particular. So yeah, I, I don't think anything supernatural is going on here. I think he feels guilty about this thing that happened and it's his belief that it happened, whether or not it did. I think you and I both think that the Lisa K thing it relies on too many contingencies for it to have been absolutely the case that Javi and Trance had anything to do with it. Rather, it's a manifestation of their guilt. And so that's what's going on here. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I think is happening here too. I, I you know, the, the issue of whether or not, or the question of whether or not Javi and Tran were in any way connected to the murder, I think is inconsequential uh, because what really matters is Javi's guilt about this. And obviously this is something he's been carrying with him for a long time. It's it's not clear how many years have passed, but the detail that we get about the the CDs does let us know that that backstory is happening. You know, in the 1980s or the 1990s, I suppose possibly the early aughts. But you know, I have a real sense that this story that was published in 2021 is meant to read to us as contemporary as is happening you know, now. And so that, you know, we're, we're seeing Javi, you know, as a middle-aged person, Tran dying at a, at, at a tragically young age from some kind of, uh, of illness, but reflecting back on things that he did, you know, 30 or possibly 40 years ago. So he's been carrying this around with him for, for, for literally decades, for a very long time. And I think what's what's been the catalyst for this, right, this breakdown that he's having is that he is now doing something specifically as an act of uh, taking a trip down memory lane, that he's trying to recapture the friendship that he and Tran had in those days, having probably largely forgotten actually about this this incident or blocked it i suppose perhaps not really forgotten about it but but willfully forgotten about it uh, but now is finding himself unable to do that because he's put himself his subconscious back in the in the mindset or at least back in in those days and it is haunting him in a, a more figurative way but yeah i think that if we saw this story from you know an omniscient third person perspective what we would see is just a person breaking into a hotel room and having an intense panic attack right i mean i also get the sense that javi is now realizing he's going to have to carry this burden of guilt alone he won't be able to get drunk and call transit two in the morning and be like, Hey man, you ever wonder if we were really responsible for that murder? That option's gone from him. If, if he ever even did that. And we know, you know, he's gotten caught. He's gone to, to jail. Um, you know, he's served weekend, the weekend days in a prison. He's, he's a professional criminal and 
now this one thing he's going to have to just carry all by himself. And I think the realization of that is also what's leading to his breakdown. Do you think that he is alive on the next page of this story? No, 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 no. He's dead. Yeah. He died. He 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 dies from fright. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's my that's my reading as well. Though I, you know, I'm not actually sure how clear that really is in the story. But no, definitely that's my my feeling here is that he does die from fright. Which that's that's a real classic ghost story. In fact, I think that's one of the marvelous things about what Jones does here is he he does a mashup of two classic genres here. You know, the crime fiction and ghost stories. But then even specifically within them, you know, real classic tropes of those types of stories. Right. Just the low-level hotel scam, the breaking into a hotel room scam here with the trope of the one last score combines that then with the saw a ghost and died of fright type of ghost story. And I just would never think that those two things have any business going together. But it turns out that you can put them together and tell a really heartbreaking and gut-wrenching story. And I, I just want to slow clap at the end of this. Yeah, it really shows just how deep... Stephen Graham Jones is into horror and horror fiction and tropes and where it comes from and what it's led to and the whole, you know, history of not just maybe horror, but of crime fiction as well. It just, it just shows us as readers something really to appreciate, which is how engaged he is with his craft. And that's something I always love seeing and, and feeling when I read a, a short story or a piece of fiction. Well, and I think here is probably the part of the episode where I, I have to confess that although I have been well aware of who Stephen Graham Jones is, this is the first Stephen Graham Jones that I have read. Is that your experience as well, Brandon? It is. I think I've read the inside dust cover of The Only Good Indians uh, two dozen times, probably, at bookstores. <laughs> uh, I'm wondering whether or not to pick it up if I have time to read it, how long it would sit on my shelf if I bought it, when I'm moving next, should I buy another book? You know, all those sorts of uh, irritating questions that flood your mind in middle age. And so uh, I'm really grateful to have read this story because I have not yet picked up The Only Good Indians. And I know he has a huge, uh, maybe not huge, but a substantial back catalog of of novels and short story collections as well. And yeah, there's a lot of Stephen Graham Jones for us to discover. Yes, I was looking at the bibliography as well. I, I was aware of you know the, the, the novels that have been uh, either won or been nominated for the awards. Of course, that's how I was aware of him at all. But yeah, he's got short story collections. And so I'm really glad that we've gotten to do one short story here on Elder Sign. And uh, I hope that uh, we'll get to do more in the future, because certainly this has, has convinced me to, to want to find a, a way to make some time to, to read more Stephen Graham Jones. So I'll be excited to do that. But I think now that we are looking to the future, and I, I guess... Uh, begging <laughs> listeners to <laughs> use their nominations on more Stephen Graham Jones stories. That is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects, as always, at claytemplemedia.com. Let me just also take a moment here to thank our generous supporter for this commission. This was a real treat and a real pleasure, and I think a great introduction into um, Stephen Graham Jones's larger catalog. So thank you so much for commissioning this story.
Yeah, it was really awesome to finally get to read some Stephen Graham Jones. And of course, commissions are a huge part of how the whole network, the show in particular, stays on the air. And so we're really grateful for the support as well. Uh, This is the part of the episode where I say what we're doing next. But of course, with commissions, we don't always know where we're going to put them when we decide to air them on the the main feed. Patreon supporters, of course, get to listen to these sometimes a year or more ahead of time. So point is, I'm not sure what we're uh, we're actually going to be releasing after this one. (laughs) But if you are someone who likes to read along with us, you can always find out what is next by visiting uh, the Elder Sign page at claytemplemedia.com. But until next time, whatever that story is, we greet you and say farewell.